Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. There's no denying that the restaurant business is tough, yet every year there are thousands of brave individuals who give it a try. A few go on to create empires. On this week's Louisiana Eats, we've got three very different individuals who have all successfully launched empires of their own. We begin with the newest, Elan Shia. In the last few months, Elan has opened two new Israeli restaurants in two different states. We'll hear all about Safta and Saba. But our conversation with Elan also delves into the essence of what drives him and what has formed him into the award-winning chef he is today. Then we sit down with Ari Weinsweg, one of the co-founders of Zingerman's, a community of restaurants in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Ari and his partner, Paul Saginaw, have created quite an empire, but different from Elan, they're intentionally keeping the entire operation in the little college town of Ann Arbor. Ari explains why that was so important to them and just how their empire has grown. And hometown boy John Kearns is back to discuss his restaurant empire. Just like Ari, John's success has long been tied to the college town of Oxford, Mississippi, home of Ole Miss where he opened his first restaurant, City Grocery, followed by Snack Bar and Bourree. Now John has expanded his most recent concept, Big Bad Breakfast, into Florida, three locations in Alabama, and one soon to come in Charleston, South Carolina. So you think you want to open a restaurant? Have a seat and take a lesson from the Empire Builders on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Alan Shaya, and I have two restaurants, Safta in Denver, Colorado, and Saba in New Orleans, Louisiana. New Orleans chef Alan Shaya has had a very busy year. Since parting ways with the Besh Restaurant Group in September 2017, the James Beard award-winning chef formed his own hospitality company, released a cookbook memoir, and opened two modern Israeli restaurants, Saba, which opened in New Orleans in May, and Safta, which opened in Denver in August. It hasn't always been an easy journey for Elan, but the star chef has no interest in erasing the past. We spoke with him this spring following the publication of his book, Shia, An Odyssey of Food, My Journey Back to Israel. Elan gave us a candid look at his life so far and a glimpse 
of what's on the horizon. I'd like to start with some of your earliest, most formative memories when it comes to your life as a chef today. I am particularly touched that to you, the scent of roasting eggplants and peppers is a safe smell of home that you relate to your Bulgarian grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, in first grade and, you know, we were new immigrants to America. And, you know, I was having a very tough childhood and and struggling with a lot of uh, family issues. My mom and my dad had separated just a year after, uh, you know, my sister and my mother and I moved to Philadelphia. You know, so everything at that point in my life was this kind of uh, a lot of really negative surprises in, in my life. And I remember coming home and opening the front door to my house and that smell of peppers and eggplants being charred over an open flame just permeated the house and it hit me once I opened the door. And it wasn't that I at that moment knew that my grandmother was making lunch. It was that I knew that she was there and from that smell. Because she was there all the way from Israel. I mean, this wasn't grandma who was around the block. Right. She had – her and my grandfather had come to visit from Israel and I didn't even know they were coming. I just opened the door and smelled that and I knew that they were there. At that moment – and I remember that moment very vividly even from such a young age. You know, I felt comfortable. I felt like uh, everything was kind of normal again and it was a smell that reminded me of – when life, when I didn't have to, you know, change my accent or when I didn't have to try to make new friends that weren't really accepting me because I was this, you know, weird little Israeli kid, you know, in Philadelphia. Every moment of my life from, you know, what I would wear to how I would talk, everything was a little bit of a challenge. And um, we were very poor. And so it was, you know, doubly hard because my my mom was working two jobs and, you know, I was very, even at that time in, in first grade, I was doing all the grocery shopping for the house. And so I really had to figure out where my place was. And I never really did that. Um, it was always hard to figure that out. You never know with people these days which path they take, whether they go to the CIA or whether... They find the right mentors that take Mm -hmm. them somehow to a level like that. You got to go to the CIA. Yeah, I did. That must have been a challenge for a poor boy. It was a challenge financially, um, but it was a saving grace for me personally. You know, I didn't even know what the CIA was until, you know, Donna and another teacher whose name was uh, Seth Schramm, who taught my vocational class. And, of course, we're talking about Donna Barnett, who was your major high school influence, your yeah. home ec teacher who kind of saved your life. Yeah, and she saw that I that I cared about food and that I had a passion for food. Uh, and she was able to steer me in the right direction. When I went to culinary school, I felt like life started over. And I felt so excited about that. The first night after my mom dropped me off, at that moment in my life was the happiest day of my life. 
once I got onto that path, I, I never looked back. You graduate from culinary school and you end up in Las Vegas. Yeah, at the Rio Casino. After Las Vegas, you end up in St. Louis? Yeah. So they offered me a, a, a position as the head chef of Antonio's restaurant in St. Louis. And I said, yes. I was 21 years old and uh, had no idea what the hell I was doing. And I felt like I had some kind of false confidence in cooking at that point. Um, but of course, like my management style was was needed a lot of work. And, you know, I learned a lot of lessons the hard way. Um, but I made it through. And uh, I really have throughout my life have made mistakes and have taken those opportunities from those mistakes to do better. And that was one of those moments where, you know, I was making a lot of mistakes, but I would always really work hard on trying to get better and better and better at it. Was it the Harris connection that got you from St. Louis to New Orleans? Yeah. So at the age of 23, I was the opening chef of their buffet. And so when I came here to New Orleans, I all of a sudden was in charge of over 200 people that were employed in the buffet and working with the executive team at Harris. And the buffet had just gone over this $20 million renovation or something like that. And, um, you know, and, and so then I, again, made a lot of mistakes and worked hard and tried to get better and, and kind of fumbled my way through it. And eventually... Um, I became the chef at the steakhouse at Harris. Now, when you were the chef at the steakhouse in Harris, you still kind of had this Italian bug going on, didn't you? I did. I did. And, and, uh, you know, I really felt like Italian food was my path forward for cooking. And I I, I knew that I needed to identify with some kind of cuisine. And I, I wanted to really nail down that identity for myself with what kind of food I was going to be cooking. So Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005 as I was the the chef at the steakhouse. And that was a big moment for me to reflect and to say, okay, where is my next pathway going to be? And, and what direction am I going to take it? Our conversation with Chef Alain Shia continues when Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Stay with us. And you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from the Napoleon House, located in the historic French Quarter. Dishing up 200 years of history, refreshing Pim's Cup cocktails, and toasty warm mufaladas all-day dining and private events at 500 Charter Street. Mm -hmm. 
You're just joining us? We've been speaking with Chef Alan Shia about his journey to become the celebrity chef he is today. Before 2005, Alan was a chef without a sense of direction. Following Katrina, everything began to change for him. After getting the steakhouse at Harris back up and running, Alan decided it was time to go to Italy. Yeah. You know, Katrina really affected me that way. And, it, and I knew that I had kind of faked it a lot up until that point when it came to me being a chef. Um, you know, I didn't quite know how to manage. I didn't quite know how to cook. Um, you know, I had been cooking my whole life, but, you know, I was continuing to reach for things that I wasn't really comfortable with and I didn't really have an identity to. And so, you know, like I I knew that there were like holes in the system. And I had this dream to open an Italian restaurant in New Orleans. And I knew that I needed to go to Italy and um, get experience so that I could come back and do that. And um, it was another one of those life-changing experiences. I learned how to cure meats and make pizzas. And then when I um, came back, it was uh, several months later uh, that we opened up Dominica. I love the fact that you can take the boy out of Israel, but you can't seem to get Israel out of the boy. Right. Dining at Dominica, I was watching as you went through this very interesting transformation where your classic Italian menu started to have an Israeli bent without any of the real words attached to it. That was kind of a funny trick. Yeah, it was, yeah. (laughs) You know, sprinkling za'atar on biscuits and uh, making shakshuka in the wood-burning pizza oven, you know, with local chanterelle mushrooms and and goat shoulders and roasted peppers and olives. And then you really broke out and just started doing Passover. Yeah. Well, you know, Passover, we were actually doing, um, I started doing Passover the first year Dominica was open. So Joe Nathan had come into town um, and had the Passover Seder and then wrote about it in the New York Times. And then the next year it got quadrupled in size, you know, and so many people came. Um, And then it became such a special part of my identity there because I would get calls from parents and their students were at Tulane and they were saying, it's our first Passover away from our children. Can we come and eat together at Dominica? And it became something that was just greater than myself. And everybody kind of made it part of this tradition um, that I felt was very special. And so I felt like I could express my identity through the menu at Dominica, aside from my Italian culinary identity. So I took a trip to Israel in 2011, and there was a restaurant in Israel called Abraxas North, and they serve these whole roasted cauliflowers, and they're famous for them. And I had that dish there. And I was transformed by it. It just, to me, was simplicity at its finest. I came back and figured out a way to kind of make it my own. And I, you know, came up with my own recipe for how to marinate it and cook it and roast it. And we had this huge pizza oven. So I was like, I could fit a bunch of cauliflowers in there. So (laughs) 
we uh, started doing this cauliflower recipe and serving it with whipped goat feta cheese. And that was my version of labna. And so here was labna and roasted cauliflower. And that was straight out of the Israel book for me. <laughs> and everybody went crazy for it. And mm-hmm. we ended up selling, you know, 700 heads of cauliflower a week at Dominica, <laughs> um, 100 portions a day. And it was, uh, you know, it, it showed me, the cauliflower dish showed me that I can express my Israeli heritage through my dishes and that people wouldn't turn around and, and run away. When you decide that the next project's going to be Shia, um, it really all goes back to your grandmother. Yeah. The story of the end of your grandmother's life is a particularly beautiful one. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you learned at the time that your grandmother was at the end of her life. Yeah, she was um, really on her deathbed, and she had kind of summoned the whole family to come to Israel. And we all did. We all went there and and spent um, a week with her. I knew that this was going to be the last time that I ever saw her. And she was very adamant that she pass along her recipes to me prior to her death. And so she would give me this list of of ingredients to go buy, and I would go to the spice markets and go to the big vegetable and meat markets and pick all these things up and bring it back to the apartment. And I would walk back and forth from her bed to the kitchen and start cooking and taking direction from her. And I would document all of these recipes down. We did that like day in and day out for several days. And uh, I um, was able to leave Israel with my memories of her, you know, written down in a book that, you know, I've used to this day. This story has such a beautiful ending because, of course, your grandmother passes away. And, of course, as we all know, you open up this very successful restaurant. And there's one dish that carries that thread through this story from your grandmother to the restaurant to your mother's reaction to the whole thing. Tell us about that dish. So that's the peppers and the eggplants that were cooking on the stove. And the name of that dish? It's called lutenitsa. It's a Bulgarian dish, and it was something that my grandmother made for us all the time. And when I opened that front door to my house at the age of seven years old, it's that aroma of peppers and eggplants that made me fall in love with food. So your mother comes to Shia. And so we open Shia, and she walks in the front door. And the first thing I do is bring her a spoonful of this lutenitsa. And I say, Mom, taste it and tell me if it tastes like soft as lutenitsa. And she tasted it, and she just started crying. And she was like, it, she would be so proud to um, to see you here doing this and, and to honoring, honor her memory this way. Well, I'm sure she is proud. And my goodness, I guess you've gone an extra step further now in making her proud because one of your two restaurants is sort of named for her, yeah. huh? Explain the names of the two new restaurants. So um, Saba and Safta mean grandfather and grandmother. 
and they're the first two restaurants of uh, you know our new company, Pomegranate Hospitality. And you know they're going to serve as the grandparents for our hospitality group. I want to continue to be proud of who I am and where I've come from and not build those barriers around my identity anymore. And I'm really excited to do that through the food at these two restaurants. That was Alan Shia, chef and author of Shia, An Odyssey of Food, My Journey Back to Israel. To hear our extended interview with Alan, visit poppytooker.com. My name is Ari Weinswag. I'm one of the co-founding partners of Zingerman's Community of Businesses in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Community is a carefully chosen word in Ari Weinswag's world. Since the 1980s, he and his partner, Paul Saginaw, have built up Zingerman's under the belief that true business success implies the good of many. This ethic has allowed Zingerman's to grow and thrive without giving in to the pressure to create replica restaurants. When I caught up with Ari, he described his early days working in Ann Arbor. Okay, let's see. Ann Arbor is a long way from Louisiana, but I grew up in Chicago. I went up to Ann Arbor, which is where University of Michigan is. University of Michigan is where I went to school. I studied Russian history. Uh, I studied the anarchists, which we might talk about later. After graduating, I had no clue what to do next. There isn't anything you can do with a history degree, which was not shocking. I was supposed to go get more degrees, which I failed in miserably. In order to not go home, I needed a job, and I had driven a cab while I was in school, which wasn't all that much fun. And uh, one of my roommates was waiting tables in a restaurant and went in there looking for a job as a server. They told me they'd call me when some opened. I waited two weeks. They hadn't called me. I went back. I reapplied as a busser. They told me they'd call me. They didn't call me. I waited two more weeks. I went back and reapplied and said, look, I'll do anything. I'm running out of money. They said, do you want to wash dishes? And I just said, sure, I'll wash dishes. Sounds fine. I didn't never worked in restaurants. <laughs> and uh, they said, could you start tonight? And that's how I got going. So the truth is I totally just got lucky in stumbling into work that I really love. Uh, I came to love food and cooking, and I really, you know, I know it's kind of weird, but I love the food business. How and why did you discover from that first job as a dishwasher that food and restaurants were a lifestyle that you wanted to pursue? Well, A, I met great people. So Paul Saginaw, who's been my partner all this from the beginning, was the general manager, and he had just shifted over from one of their other restaurants, and it was also his first day. And then Frank Carollo, who's one of the partners in our bakery, was a line cook. And then Maggie Bayless, who's the partner in Zing Train, which is our little business and leadership training business, uh, was a cocktail waitress. So I don't know why we were all in there together, but we're now uh, been working together almost twice as long as some of our employees been alive. So, but that's what we call a good problem. That is uh, a good problem. So anyway, uh, but Frank started teaching me how to prep, and I started cooking the line. And I, I think that um, the way that we do food is very intellectually grounded so it's not like I, th I think the sort of old school restaurant thing of just show up and it's 
so onerous and the owner has to be there all the time and you can never have a day off and it's a grind, grind, grind and the employees are nothing but trouble. Like there's all these negative beliefs in that model. But I think for us, it's always been about learning and growing and studying the food and studying how to make a better and healthier, more interesting and more rewarding organization. And when you're pushing yourself to learn and grow, there's a lot to it. And then because all we do at Zingerman's is traditional food, I got to really study history, but history of food. And it turns out, although I love history in general, most people are way more interested when they're actually eating the history. I think for me, that's a lot of what made it work. Why is it called Zingerman's? Where's the uh, name come from? Up, we made it up. Paul's last name is Saginaw in Russia. It was Sagin Or, which means seer of light in ancient Hebrew, which is actually quite inspiring. Uh, my last name is unpronounceable. It's wine, unless you speak German or Yiddish. Uh, so that was out. And so we sat on the floor at his house. There was no furniture. So the floor was your only option. Uh, drank a few beers and we brainstormed names. And as you can remember, we, it was better in those days to have an A or a Z to be more quickly found on a list, which doesn't matter anymore because on Google, they all come up just as quickly. But in those days, it was an advantage. So we brainstormed names. We picked Zingerman's. Tell us about that original Zingerman's. What was it like to go there? Well, it still is there. Uh, that's, that's the core of what we do, but we've expanded that building three times. But I mean, like I said, it was 1,300 square feet. So it was me and Paul, two employees, 29 seats, 25 sandwiches. You know, in a lot of ways, I guess if you go back in New Orleans history, I'm trying to think of what the right metaphor would be, but a lot of those kind of old family little corner grocery. But it was always traditional food. It was always about having a good place for people to work. It was always trying to give great service in the still standing belief that the, we need the customers and the employees way more than they need us. It dawns on me that many of my listeners may not know what you're even talking about when you say traditional food. Yeah. So tell me about what you serve and yeah. what are some of the yeah. beloved foods that people come to Zingerman's for? Well, traditional foods. So, you know, being a history major, there's no place in which history starts, really. Uh, uh, Rebecca Solnit, she said, uh, trying to say where a story begins is like dipping a cup in the ocean. <laughs> so I don't know where tradition starts, but the point for us was not to do modern fusion cooking and throw together stuff that we didn't feel like belonged together, but rather to go back to old school things. So at Zingerman's Roadhouse, uh, which is all regional American food, sit-down restaurant, which we opened 15 years ago, the Sunday blue plate special is griots and grits. Okay, oh, my so goodness. it's it's to take you things. a little something from well, us. Well, it's all we do is from all over the country. So we do New Mexico green chilies. We do crab cakes from Maryland. We do wild rice from our part of the world, Wisconsin cheese curds, all that sort of stuff. So it's always going back to the old school ways of doing it. And so at the bakehouse, we bake, at our bakehouse, we bake breads that way it was done 150 years ago. Back at the very start, um, was your selection more like perhaps a deli, a Jewish deli? Yeah, so we, from the beginning, we were a weird mix. So yes, definitely corned beef, chopped liver, chicken soup, and we also had some olive oil, some mustard, some smoked fish, some pate, you know, stuff that was not typically combined. Um, and then so fast forwarding to today, all our businesses are in the Ann Arbor area. I'm very focused on not opening outside of our home area. Uh, and we only open each business once because I really like unique things. I don't particularly love replicas. 
Uh, so we have, I don't know what we got, 11, 12 different businesses all located within 15 minutes of each other. So the deli is the core, but we have a mail order business. We have a coffee roasting, a bakery, creamery. We make handmade cream cheese and goat cheese and gelato. We have a little training business I mentioned earlier. Uh, the Roadhouse is sit-down restaurant I just mentioned, all regional American food. We have uh, an event space, Cornman Farms, which is about 15 minutes west of town, which is an 1834 barn and farmhouse that we totally renovated to do weddings and events. And then we have a little Korean restaurant that we opened a year and a half ago. Uh, and I'm probably forgetting something, candy business. We make little handmade candy bars, peanut brittle, and all that kind of stuff. Today we have about, let me sum it up, we have about 700 employees. Uh, and we hire about 300 more in the fall for mail order because we ship so much all over the country. At what point do you decide to translate all of that that you know into these wonderful, wonderful books that you've written where you've imparted all the wisdom of all that you know and that you've learned through these many years? I mean, I've learned, you know, the hard way that the more we can clarify what it is that we're trying to do, the easier it is for us to do it because when we can explain it to the outside, then we're more clear about what we're actually trying to achieve. Uh, over time though, I started to write more and more about our business philosophy because it's a big piece. It's not just the food, it's also the philosophical approaches that we take. And I think that writing is like teaching. The more you do it, the more you learn. What do you think the biggest mistake that people who run food businesses make? Well, part of my anarchist thinking, with all due respect to the question, is to get out of hierarchical thinking because I would suggest there is no biggest. I think that we're all making mistakes every minute uh, and we're all succeeding every minute. And I think when people, it's like in nature, like what's the most important part of an ecosystem? And the answer is there isn't one. Everything is contributing and everything is factoring in and everything impacts everything else. And I think that's true in organizations. And, and, and I'm not being flip, but I think the biggest mistake a lot of people make in business is thinking that there's a biggest thing. Because they're looking for that magic answer and they're looking for the thing they got to avoid. And what it really is, is, yeah, I mean, the big things matter, but the small things matter just as much. And so how I greet the dishwasher whether I pick up the cigarette butt that somebody threw on the sidewalk in front of the restaurant, you know, the quality of the espresso that just got pulled five minutes ago while I wasn't there, like those things are just as important as your mission statement. You know, so what I want to do is create an ecosystem, create an organization, create a mindset for myself where like every tiny thing matters and everybody matters. And when you understand that they're all important, I think each piece of the ecosystem enhances the others. That was Ari Wanswag, co-founder of the Zingerman's Community of Businesses in Ann Arbor, Michigan. What are the origins of pita bread, and who does it really belong to? Stay tuned. And we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker. 
and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarans. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcast yet? We just posted a new one that takes you straight to the Landry family's fishing camp in Port Sulphur, Louisiana. COO Eric Molina, Don, Tracy, and Mike Landry are the crew that keeps Don's seafood as authentic as the day Don Landry Sr. fried that first piece of fish. They spill the beans on everything from fish frying to their crawfish boiling secrets. Just visit poppytooker.com to subscribe. And while you're there, check out Don Seafood's new video series. It's all real Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What are the origins of pita bread, and who does it really belong to, anyway? Pita originated with the Greeks and is believed to be derived from the ancient Greek word pikte, P-I-K-T-E, which means fermented pastry. Today, it's the backbone of Israeli food. It's a simple combination of flour, water, yeast, and salt baked at very high temperatures, which makes the water turn to steam and puffs up the pita, forming the pocket inside. Most pita today comes from highly automated production facilities that process upwards of 100,000 pounds of flour at one time. But there's no comparison to that and Alain Shia's pita. I'll never forget the look on Alain's face when he proudly showed me his first bright blue wood-burning pita oven that had just been installed at his former restaurant, Shia. He was like a kid with his first brand-new bike. Wood-burning pita ovens have become a fixture at his consequent restaurants, Saba and Safta. Heated to 700 degrees, the pita bake in less than a minute and are delivered immediately to your table. The smoky flavor from the burning wood puts Elan's pita in a class of its own. If you'd like to give his pita recipe a try, and Elan says pita can be successfully baked at home on your barbecue pit, check out his recipe on our homepage. But personally, I'd rather have Elan make it for me at Saba or Safta, now open in Denver, Colorado baking fresh pita to order. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Hey, this is John Currents. I'm the chef and owner of City Grocery, Bure, Big Bad Breakfast, Snack Bar, the main event, and the Lamar Lounge in Oxford, Mississippi. Or, I should say, I get credit for all the work that a mountain of other people that are really working hard actually do, and they call me chef. Those who strike out on their own are often surprised to find that home 
inevitably calls them back. While Chef John Currents has found purpose and fame in Oxford, Mississippi, his passion for food is intrinsically linked to his early years in New Orleans. The James Beard award-winning chef sat down with us to reflect on the formative moments of his career. John Currents, I would love to know what made you want to be a chef? Well, I mean, I, I think that I became a chef you know, through a, the process of elimination, I think I'd tried everything else out there when I finally found this. And, and I say that sort of half kidding, um, you know, but I, I sort of found cooking by mistake. My first job cooking was uh, when I was put on a tugboat um, after my senior year in high school and was assigned the duties of the cook because I was a low man on the totem pole. And so I was cooking for 10 guys three times a day, you know, in a, out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. And so it was very much sort of a sink or swim situation. And I, I survived, but I also really enjoyed that galley cooking. I mean, it was, it was strange to me because I'd never cooked really before with any sort of ambition at all. Um, but this little bitty kitchen where you could – there was literally – you couldn't stand anywhere in the kitchen and not touch every other surface. It was tiny. And that, that led me to, you know, restaurant jobs when I was in college and post-college. And it was really moving back home to New Orleans after I had you know, spent three years in the kitchen with Bill Neal at Crook's Corner in Chapel Hill. Not young enough that I didn't understand the significance of being there um, and then curating jobs because I wanted to learn more about it. Um, so I had worked in the cut shop um, at the Food Lion grocery store because I wanted to learn how to cut meat. And I worked for a, a little Jewish smokehouse operation where I was butchering and brining and smoking bluefish and salmon by the hundreds of pounds. I got a job as a bread baker at an Italian restaurant because I wanted to learn how to bake bread. And, and all these things while I was in Chapel Hill were leading me down that path. But it wasn't until I came home to help Larkin Selman open Gotro's. And I saw the fire and the passion in Larkin and what he was capable of generating um, in the way of response in that little bitty dining room on Soniat Street and realized that the thing that I loved about cooking was that it really combined all of the passions that I had all at once. I mean, it was artistic. It required an ability to approach technique and reproduce things consistently over and over and over again. It was intense getting ready for service and then even more intense during service. There was booze. There were drugs. I mean, it was it was everything in the world that I could want all at once. And it all went on, you know, sort of late at night. So there was a sinister thing about it. <laughs> um, but you could stand at the door in the kitchen and look through the little diamond-shaped piece of glass out into the dining room and immediately gauge someone's response to something that you had made and they were putting in their mouths. And so those were all the things that really sort of led me to it. It was just, it was fun. It was intense. Um, you know, you were sharing a piece of your life with everything that went out, you know, to a diner. Um, and these were all things that, uh, that I loved. And I think I understood early that, you know, that, that creating food was about storytelling. And um, so that really drew this 
moth to that flame. I know since we've had this conversation and we have so many mutual friends who were either in your class or something that you're the product of a Newman education. So goodness knows your mom and dad invested a lot of tuition in your education before you even went off to college. So when you tell mom and dad, now I'm going to be a cook, what did they say? My father was was very troubled at first. I don't think he understood at all, you know, why it was that I was going down this road. I think he he had hoped, uh, probably when I came home from Chapel Hill, that I took this job with Larkin just as a, you know, as a bridge to whatever I was going to do, and you know, maybe just enroll in Tulane and finish up my classes, and you know, and go on to do something noble. And I know that in the first couple of years that I was back home, that. We had conversations that kind of touched on it a little bit, but the most vivid memory that I have was him sitting down with me one day and saying, you know, I, I didn't understand this at all. Because um, when, I, when I moved home, I, I moved back in with my parents and I lived with them. So I was out the door early and home late. And, and, and after about 18 months, I remember my dad saying, I didn't understand this at all, but I've never seen anybody work as hard at what they're doing as you're working at this job. And he goes, so now while I worry about, you know, you and, you know, whether you're being compensated fairly for what you're doing, I, I have to tell you, I, I'm impressed. And if this is what you want to do, you know, you need to you need to continue this path because clearly, you know, it's what you want. Um, you know, he's also the same guy who, you know, I remember sitting in a cab outside of a restaurant called the Gay Hussar in London. Um, when when I was about 12 years old. And before we got out of the cab to go inside, uh, I remember m- my father telling me very specifically, he said, I want you to, when you go inside here, to understand that the gentlemen in tuxedos here that are waiting tables, there's some of them that have waited tables here for 30 or 40 years. This is their job. And we don't recognize service as a noble profession in the United States. But these are people who they are very proud of what they do. They're respected for doing that job within the community. And oddly, you know, in spite of the fact that a very small percentage of guys in my industry, you know, reach the point of celebrity that, you know, I'm at the, the very bottom end of that. But, you know, it's still not really recognized as a, as a noble profession, and I mean, to the point where I just had a conversation at lunch today why, you know, I've never been invited to Newman for career day or to share my experiences in my career as an author or, you know, as a chef, you know, or the people that I'm connected to or what that connectivity means, you know, back to Newman. And, you know, I've said I've had this conversation with Neil Bodenheimer, with, with uh, Adam Biederman, um, with Larkin. None of us. I mean, we've got guys that are, you know, that are, are very accomplished in our field, but, you know, it's still, they don't need us infecting their young doctors and lawyers. <laughs> and that's kind of a sad thing to me. John, why do you think you've been so successful at this? 
you know, I take a, a very honest approach. I knew when I opened that I didn't possess the ability to create you know, a statement about some particular kind of food because I didn't have enough experience or education or passion for one particular area of food. I was just passionate about food in general. I knew that, you know, even like going into Oxford, that if I tried to overreach my abilities as a chef, that I would fail in a heartbeat. And that I was in a town that was hungry for something, but I knew that they were going to want quantity, they were going to want quality. And as a result, we created menus that combined flavors and textures that people would like, things that I had cooked before, um, but they were from all over the world um, and just sort of depending on what I was into in the day. And so that honesty, I think, people appreciated. And it wasn't, you know, until about eight or ten years in that, you know, I, I finally, I got so exhausted with knowing that I couldn't answer the question, which, you know, Frank Stitt was the first one to ask me about two years into my cooking was, you know, he asked me, he said, explain your philosophy on food, you know, to, to me. And I went, philosophy? And then I thought I left that behind in Virginia at the all-boys school. I, I don't know what you're talking about. And I just kind of ran away from this conversation. But it troubled me that, you know, I was also having people ask me, just like, explain your restaurant. And I didn't have an elevator pitch for it. I couldn't give, you know, a, a subtitle for, for City Grocery. Um, and that I needed to figure out what it was that I was doing. And, and, and that really, you know, it took me about eight years to really figure out, um, you know, sort of what was going on and what it was that drove me to cook. How did it feel to win that James Beard Award, Best Chef of the South, in 2009? I'm not going to lie to you. My, my wife got me hammered before that. And... <laughs> Well, I, I mean, there was no reason for me to believe that I was going to win. I mean, I still to this day, you know, I tell folks every year, I was like, oh, nine was the worst recession year for awards that must have ever happened if I won that thing. Because when I look at the guys that I was nominated against, like the slate of talent was so fantastic. But I mean, honestly, it was the most flattering moment professionally that, you know, that I can ever imagine. Um, but, you know, I also knew... Um, and, you know, and I, and I think I said as much when I accepted it that, you know, it's a shame that they give that award to a chef because that chef doesn't exist without every person, you know, that, that has contributed to putting that food together and, and putting it on a table, serving it, managing it, washing the dishes. I mean, and, you know, even the rotten SOBs that you've had to fire participated in helping propel you to that point. And so... It, it was a wonderful night, um, and, and it was a wonderful and exhausting night. Uh, I think I was in, in bed within an hour after it was over because I was just such an emotional wreck. Well, congratulations. That's quite a successful tale, my dear. And it was kind of exhausting just listening to that, isn't it? Hey, man, I'm in awe. So <laughs> I'm, I'm in awe, and I'm thrilled to have had this chance to – have such a wonderful, wonderful chat with you. Well, Thank you so much. Thank you, love. John Currents, author and James Beard award-winning chef.
it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you can hear our new Quick Bites podcast and also pre-order my latest book, The Pascal's Manali Cookbook, debuting this fall. If you've missed an episode of Louisiana Eats, you can hear today's show or catch up on previous editions anytime online at itsneworleans.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Rouse's Markets, and from Don's Seafood, where the Landry family has been serving real Louisiana Eats since 1934. Visit Don's Seafood in Lafayette, Gonzales, Denham Springs, Hammond, Covington, or Metairie. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Dickie Brennan's Tableau, brunch and dinner daily with outdoor balcony dining overlooking Jackson Square. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to producers Joe Schreiner, Sarah Holtz, and Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Don't forget to find our recipes and see what we're up to at poppytooker.com. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>